0: Hi, this is John, your host. First, a reminder. This is Episode 3 in a multi part story. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 and 2, you should probably start there and then come back. If you're ready for Episode 3, we're really glad to have you back for more speaking of work. Next, something new radio drama. In addition to the oral histories, music, and other recordings you're used to hearing, we've added voice actors to break up some of the monotony of Yours Truly and to play some of the key roles we just couldn't fill otherwise. In all cases, even though the voices aren't authentic, the words are, each actor will be reading from a historical document found in the collections we talked about in Episode 2. Lastly, a disclaimer. In this episode, we'll be talking a lot about a teachers' union that we haven't mentioned before, the American Federation of Teachers, or AFT. You should know that I'm a member of AFT Local, Seven one six. Now, with all that out of the way, on with the show.
1: Everyone was beginning to feel the frazzle, you know, and the tension was growing deeper and deeper. And finally, it just came to a point where the negotiating team said, let's have a vote among our association members and see how they feel about, should we take it to the next step? which of course was an illegal strike. Which you had to think a long time because illegally means that you may not have a job tomorrow. You've got a family to feed and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got a car payment to make. You sort of needed to have a little income coming in to be able to meet your bills. But the preponderance of the association said, we want to accept this challenge. We have a tough choice that we have to make, and life is full of tough choices. And this may mean I'm not going to have a job, but will it mean it's going to be better for the future of education? We have to take that risk, and we did.
0: That's Janet Vife friends Just over 50 years ago, in the spring of 1970, she and other teachers and school workers in Keokuk, Iowa, organized a strike that all but shut down the city's schools for almost a week. The strike didn't come out of nowhere, but was the culmination of long standing grievances, a months long failed negotiation process, and finally, careful planning and coordination between the teachers and their allies in and outside of the city. At the strike's climax, the teachers went so far as to defy a judge's order so as to shine a bright light on what they believed to be an injustice that threatened not only them, but students and the community as a whole. Through their actions, they would change their future and help to change the future of the state. I'm your host, John McCurley. This is Speaking of Work, the podcast from the Iowa Labor History Oral Project, Season 1. Citizen Worker, Episode 3, They Jail Teachers, Don't They? By April 1970, the Keokuk Education Association had reached a crisis point in its negotiations with the district school board. A few weeks before, the board had announced its plan to make sweeping changes to teacher pay, Changes that would have made it very hard for teachers to grow their salaries over time, at least without begging their bosses for extra work. Iowa law didn't spell out rules for these negotiations. So the board had decided that it was going to move forward with its own plan, even though teachers had rejected it and an outside mediator had found the plan to be unreasonable. For their part, KEA leaders recognized that if they were going to get out of this fix, they were going to need allies. That's when they began to call for help. Hello? No. Uh, hi, uh, Dale, this is John McCurley. That's Dale Listina. Back in the spring of 1970, Dale worked for the National Education Association, then is now the largest body of organized educators in the U.S. He'd gotten his start as a teacher activist in Fargo, North Dakota. From there, he had worked his way up until he had become an NEA field representative in a little two-person office in St. Paul, Minnesota. When negotiations broke down in Keokuk, Dale got the call to go check things out. By the 1960s, the organization that would become the NEA had been around for a little over 100 years. For almost all of that time, the NEA had thought of itself as an association of education professionals. That is, not just classroom teachers, but also superintendents, principals, and even, at times, school board members. They were not emphatically not a union. But being an association that did some union-like things could lead to some unresolved tensions. Not surprisingly, even though teachers were in the majority, they often felt like their bosses, and superintendents in particular, were the ones who really called the shots. This was true, if for no other reason than because superintendents gave themselves leave to attend conferences and other NEA leadership events while insisting that teachers stay in the classroom. By the 1960s, these kinds of internal tensions were beginning to create an opening for the NEA's biggest competitor, the American Federation of Teachers. The AFT had been founded back in the 19-teens, right around World War I, by rank-and-file teachers who really wanted an organization that focused on their problems as workers. It was the same sense that led the AFT to affiliate with the larger U.S. labor movement, first with the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, then with the AFL-CIO, which was formed in 1955 by a merger of the AFL with the Congress of Industrial Organizations. That's the CIO. So, at the start of the 1960s, the AFT was ready to move when a new generation of young teachers made it clear that they were ready to take on all sorts of authority figures including their bosses. The AFT was ready to demand union recognition and real collective bargaining, and they were ready to strike, as they proved in New York City in 1960 and in 1962. Although these demands and dramatic actions never caused a wholesale rush of members out of the NEA and into the AFT, they did cause many NEA members, including national leaders, to sit up and take notice. Throughout the 1960s, without abandoning their sense of themselves as education professionals, NEA members began to demand a much more aggressive, unified, and teacher-centered organization. And, in so doing, they brought this new style of teacher organization far beyond the big cities, where most AFT locals were located.
2: I can say a few things about that. And the uh, Education Association could uh, found that uh, in competing with the more militant AFT at the time, that they needed to be more militant too in order to get the newer uh, people who were coming into, uh, uh, into teaching. And so there was a, a transfer over from the uh, professional organization. It was still that, but it also got the uh, got to be just as militant as uh, the AFT. And in essence, uh, what I like to say is analogous to Ford and
0: Chevrolet. So, when Dale Listina and his counterpart from the Iowa State Education Association, Neil Curtis, arrived on the scene in the early spring of 1970. They were steeped in these changes, and they brought a willingness and ability to help Keokuk teachers take whatever stand that they felt necessary, including a strike.
3: April 14th, 1970. To KEA members, from Tom Coffey, President, I am including an outline of activities that each of you will be involved in as we work until the board meeting time tentatively scheduled for Friday. Dale Lestina of NEA, as well as Neil Curtis of ISEA staff, are in town and will be helping us with this plan. With the help of all members, we will be successful. Tuesday, April 14th.
0: One. So, just what kind of plan did Listina, Curtis, and the KEA first come up with? On April 14th, KEA President Tom Coffey informed the association's members about coordinated activities that had been planned between then and the next board meeting on April 17th. What really stands out about these activities were all the ways that rank and file KEA members were going to stay informed, get involved, and crucially, reach out to allies. First, they set up a phone tree. Remember, no texting back in 1970, and they scheduled pro-KEA radio ads and talk show appearances throughout the week. Teachers were divided up into truth squads to spread the KEA's message to their neighbors door-to-door. Teachers also attended club meetings where they could find local leaders and already organized groups of people who they might turn to their side. Next, they met with other school workers, including cooks, secretaries, and custodians. They even scheduled meetings with school board members who weren't on the board's negotiating committee. As Tom stressed, there was a job and a need for everyone.
3: All members will plan to attend the board meeting Friday. All members will help get our friends from the community to the board meeting. Because without them, Keokuk Education Association is destroyed.
0: By the time of the April 17th board meeting, tensions were running high on both sides. Here's how Keokuk Administrator Morris Wilson later described events. Only one action item was on the agenda, teacher salaries. Because of the large crowd and evident hostility, school board president Kenneth Matthews prefaced the meeting with a few introductory remarks and set up definite guidelines for behavior and decorum during the meeting, indicating... As Matthews said, comments from interested parties will be welcome, but the board will not submit itself to a third degree. When Matthews was done, the board recognized members of the community to speak on the matter. The Keokuk Daily Gate City newspaper later reported that most were pro-KEA. After the public comments, the board caucused to discuss the matter in private. When they returned, only 15 minutes later, They voted on whether or not to accept the board's own proposal, its own unilateral proposal, on teacher salaries. Aye. 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 It was unanimous. When the vote was done, Leland turned to the teachers' negotiating committee and asked them, as Wilson recorded it, to join with the board and administrators to accept the board's decision. But no joint acceptance was to follow. Coffey informed the superintendent and board that the KEA membership had rejected the board's salary proposal and that they would not accept the decision as final. And with that, he led the KEA members out of the board meeting and into an emergency KEA membership meeting held at the junior high. As Coffey later told a reporter,
3: The association members feel very strongly that the adopted salary schedule is a step into the past. We will not reveal our moves towards changing this action, but moves will be made with responsibility and impact. We expect to keep this question before a sympathetic public as long as it may be necessary.
0: After the break, a final attempt at compromise and preparations for confrontation. brought to you by the University of Iowa Labor Center, providing educational programs and research support to Iowa workers and their organizations since 1951. Right now, the Labor Center is offering customized classes for local unions. Topics include stewards training, the Family Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, workers' compensation, labor history, health and safety, organizing, and much, much more. The Center's staff work with you to customize agendas to meet your needs. You pick dates and times that work for you and your members, and labor educators provide handouts and set up any technology needed to participate. Classes include interactive discussions, real-life scenarios, and up-to-date information, so you can keep stewards and members engaged, informed, and connected. Don't wait. Schedule a class now by contacting the Labor Center at labor center at uiowa.edu or call 319-335-4144. By the last two weeks of April 1970, the leaders of the Keokuk Education Association felt pushed into a corner. From their perspective, they had made every effort to compromise with the Keokuk School Board, at least in a way that didn't abandon the one thing they regarded as non-negotiable, a salary system that reflected education and experience and that conferred some degree of professional respect, growth, and independence. But before we can get to the strike, and I promise it's coming, we need to know a little bit more about these leaders, especially those who had been elected by the membership and who were now collaborating on a way forward with Dale Lestina and his partners from the ISCA. We're gonna focus on four of these leaders, two of whom you've already met. First, of course, was Tom Coffey, who, in addition to serving as KEA president, taught English at the junior high school. Tom had been born in 1932 in a little town in central Missouri. He'd come from a family that had both Union and Irish Catholic roots. He'd studied to become a teacher at Rockhurst College in Kansas City, where he developed his interest in social justice. He ended up in Keokuk in the early 1960s the same way a lot of other teachers did, after building experience in smaller districts and earning a master's degree along the way. At least in the early days, Keokuk was a perfect fit a place where a man of Tom's intelligence and tenacity could make a name and rise up quickly through the ranks. But once things changed, it also became a place where someone of his background and personality would quickly find himself at the center of a storm.
4: The word stubborn is too harsh, but he once he got on a trail, he was like a beagle after a rabbit. <laughs> he, couldn't, he, he, he could not be shaken.
0: Next is Billy Peters, or...
2: Billy Hayes. Peters Anderson.
0: As she was when I interviewed her in 2014. She'd been born in Western Illinois in 1922, making her by far the oldest of the KEA leaders, 48 in 1970. She'd studied to become a teacher at what was then Iowa State College, now Iowa State University, and later went on for graduate education.
2: I ended up being very close to my doctorate's
0: degree. And worked in a variety of teaching jobs since the 1940s. She was the KEA's secretary, the only woman on the negotiating committee, and with the exception of Miles Brewer, the only elementary school teacher. Then we have someone new, Jean Illitalo.
5: Uh He was a very um, vibrant, uh, intense, passionate educator.
0: Jean had been born to a large farming family in South Dakota and had gone to college and taught high school in North Dakota before coming to Keokuk. At 30, Gene was the youngest of the group, but his fearless and outspoken personality had already earned him the spot of the KEA's lead negotiator. Lastly, we have Paul Gaylord. In many ways, Paul was a lot like Tom, in background, if not necessarily in temperament. And it's not surprising that the two men were good friends and collaborators. In fact, I think I would say that Tom might have seen Paul as a bit of a younger brother.
2: I was jumping right in. I was willing to take
0: on anything. Like Tom, Paul had come from a union background. In Paul's case, it had been his father who had been a union railroad worker. Yeah, he's He's a strong union man. Paul had been born in suburban Chicago in 1937, but grew up in the countryside outside Keokuk. From very early on, he knew that he wanted to be a teacher. But by the time that he was looking for his first teaching job, it was the early 1960s, in Keokuk was already booming, and he had to wait until he could get his foot in the door. Like so many other teachers who we met in episode one, Paul knew how lucky he was to work in Keokuk, but he also thought that he and his fellow teachers had earned a level of respect that the board was no longer willing to show them.
2: It was a move towards, we're the people who tell you what we're going to do. And it just didn't seem like
6: Keokuk at all.
0: So, Now that we know a little bit more about the teachers at the center of our story, let's take another look at how they approached their problem, specifically how they tried to prevent their employer, the Keokuk School Board, from simply ratifying its own proposal in the absence of any law or other outside power to the contrary. As we've seen, since they couldn't rely on the law, teachers took some key and important steps by trying to build a power base closer to home. They informed and organized their members. They called in reinforcements from their state and national associations. And they reached out to other school workers and community members. But so far, none of this had succeeded in shifting the board's position. So here's what they did next. First, they doubled down on finding allies. This time, they turned to another local power player, the Keokuk labor movement. On the one hand, we might just expect the labor movement to be the teacher's ally. But here's where we have to remember that competition we talked about between the AFT and the NEA. The AFT was affiliated with the AFL-CIO. The NEA wasn't. What that meant was that the labor movement tended to view the NEA as a kind of company union that competed with the AFT, which was, for them, the real teachers' union. So in 1970, it was a big deal when delegates to the Keokuk Trades and Labor Assembly, that is, the local representative of the AFL-CIO, voted unanimously to endorse the teacher's position. As a newspaper reported, local labor leaders felt that the teachers were underbidding in their proposal because, the labor leader said, teacher pay was, quote, not comparable to the wages of organized labor and industry. If any one person can be said to have been behind this, it was George Whiney.
6: Whiney. That's W-E-I-N-Y? That's correct. In
0: 1970, Whiney was a recently retired district vice president of the Grain Millers Union and arguably the most well-respected labor leader in Keokuk, maybe even in all of southeast Iowa. For almost 40 years, he had been a central figure in helping to transform the whole region from an anti-union bastion into a solidly organized part of the state.
6: Well,
2: you wore a heck of a lot of hats. Yeah, I guess so.
0: But what is often forgotten is that before George Winey got his start organizing grain millers at the Hubinger Grain Milling Company, today owned by Roquette, a France-based multinational, he had been a member of the American Federation of Teachers. Winey had been born in Iowa, but had migrated out to Montana in the 1920s to search for teaching jobs. That's where he joined the AFT and had his first experiences with organized labor. He'd only come back to southeast Iowa because as the Great Depression got worse, Montana had stopped paying its teachers. At the time, he had a young family to support and in-laws in Keokuk who were encouraging him to look for work in local factories, which were, at the time, almost completely non-union. As bad as industrial work was back then, teaching was worse. Four decades, that is one, two, three, four, and a lot of union organizing later, Whiney still remembered his days back in the AFT and struck up a friendship with one Tom Coffey of the Keokuk Education Association. In the spring of 1970, when Tom came looking for allies in the local labor movement, Whiney was more than willing to help. Whiney had seen more than his fair share of strikes, and he knew that you could use all the allies you could get. So, in addition to rallying the city's unions behind the teachers, he also helped to bring together a so-called citizens' committee that included some groups that the teachers hadn't yet reached, that is, faith leaders, representatives of the local Civil Rights Commission, and even former board members. Although Whiney convened the group, he quickly passed leadership on to someone who he thought might be a less polarizing figure, in this case, a faith leader, the Reverend Donald Bostian of St. John's Episcopal Church. But by late April, a majority of teachers, and their leaders especially, had come to the conclusion that there was no way to reach an acceptable settlement through negotiation alone. So, while they worked with the Citizens Committee, they also prepared another option, confrontation. Together with their allies, they came up with a plan for a strike. But to pull that off, first they were going to need the membership's approval. To tell this story, we're going to need some help from a couple of people we've heard from in previous episodes. Jane Abel and Lewis Walden.
5: We were having meetings, more and more meetings, and the K.E.A. officers and some of the people who were coming down from state, they would be talking to us mm-hmm. and explaining what was happening.
3: There
2: was there was no no choice left.
5: And in some res- respects, if you think about, it, we were being conditioned to what could happen and if it happens, you know, be prepared. We were being led up to that. And even though I didn't want to accept it or didn't think it would really happen, we were being taken along that road.
4: I can remember the meeting at the junior high school when we had like every single teacher was there.
5: So now the day arrives when we have to make make the decision. The president ran through all
2: the, the efforts we'd made to resolve it, what we had done, what we were willing to do. You know, we have two choices. We can acquiesce and let them set a salary schedule and we'll destroy the school district and many of you will have to go on because you'll take cuts and
4: pay, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Or uh, we can strike for our rights.
5: And I thought, oh, we'll be given a piece of paper to vote. No, that is not what happened.
0: We had a standing vote.
5: In other words, all people who were going to vote in favor of going on strike had to stand up where we would be visible to all the other teachers in the room. Everyone knew, did you vote yes or did you vote no?
4: Which was a beautiful tactic Mm -hmm. in retrospect. Because if you weren't standing, then the pressures of people around you were big time to get your ass up. So that
5: meant 182 people stood up and two people didn't. I submit that if it had been a vote on a secret ballot, it would not have been that sizable in favor to strike, although it still would have passed. I I didn't, I, I sometimes I think I didn't know I was gonna vote until I stood up, mm-hmm. but I did. But yes, there was pressure. How could you not? Mm-hmm. How, could, how could you let down your, your fellow teachers in something that was, overall, was important? I don't regret I don't
0: regret my strike vote. On April 28th, Coffey informed the press that the membership had authorized a strike. We don't know how Leland or anyone else on the board responded to the strike authorization when it was first released. But we do have a really important source that gives us a peek into their thinking just before the announcement. It's a letter of April 24th From Leland to the Board. If you could see all the other documents we have from Leland, I think you'd understand why I think this letter is so revealing and important. In all those other documents, we really get Leland the superintendent, the careful bureaucrat moving around whatever pieces need to be moved without leaving very much of himself behind. But this is different.
4: The war is no longer being won on the playing fields of Eden, but among the power figures of our community. In this game of confrontation politics, we must remember that KEA does not have real power. If they did, confrontation would not be necessary, because you would have received the word in other ways. Confrontation is, however, a real play for power, with risks for both sides. If KEA loses, it really hurts. If KEA wins, next year's concessions from the community will come much easier. ISEA and KEA will be free to concentrate on Burlington or Waterloo, and Iowa loses something. We are in the stage of limited warfare, and even the maximum losses in limited warfare are preferable to either side, to the possible losses of unlimited warfare. In every community, most power is slack on any given issue. The object of confrontation politics is to polarize this slack by the impossible precept that you are either for children or against them. Let us beware the hot-headed smash-em advice and wait and watch. People do not really believe teachers will behave unreasonably until the evidence is in. So a true assessment of power still awaits.
0: Here we have Leland as the World War II vet and the seasoned small-town superintendent making careful assessments of power relationships. In fact, much the same way that Lestina and the teachers were. We see them both thinking in terms of who do they know and how do those relationships give them some advantage. We see that they were both thinking about how public perception could change those relationships. And lastly, We see how school administrators were thinking about the Keokuk struggle a lot like teachers were, as part of a much larger battle being waged in the state, and maybe even in the nation as a whole. But there's also something else really important here, something that's important to our story and how it's going to unfold. Because if Leland hadn't been confident that the KEA had any real power on April 24th, after the strike authorization— he appears to have changed his mind. Even more, while he was urging the board to act cautiously on April 24th, the strike authorization seems to have pushed him in the other direction. On Friday, May 1st, a week after Leland's letter, and three days after the strike authorization announcement, Leland and the board decided to call in their own ally, the courts, specifically District Judge Joseph Leary. Leary's an interesting character who we'll come back to in a later episode. But for now, what you need to know is that he'd been a district judge in Lee County, Iowa, including Keokuk, for a long time, all the way back to 1936. And, over all those years, he developed a reputation for being a tough judge who was concerned first and foremost with the authority of the law, often regardless of whom that law served. In fact, shortly after being elected the first time, as an Irish Catholic Democrat and the son of a railroad worker, it might be noted, He'd issued a temporary injunction against Whiney and the Grain Millers during a strike they'd waged against Hubinger's in the last years of the Great Depression. In 1970, we don't know if the board was happy to have Leary as their district judge or not, but, regardless, they probably thought their odds were pretty good when they requested him to issue yet another temporary injunction to stop a strike. In so doing, however, they pulled him in as a player, and a powerful one at that not someone like the mediator, William Monaghan, who they could just ignore if they wanted to. And they at least signaled that smash him was now an option. The board's request for an injunction quickly brought matters to a head as the Citizens Committee held feverish meetings with both sides. Here's how Reverend Boston later recalled the last exhausting session on the evening of Sunday, May 3rd.
4: The evening concluded when the board and KEA could not agree on a proposal originating with the committee which had the appearance of a true compromise. We went away that night discouraged. Our task was not done, but we could see no way now of accomplishing a settlement.
0: The following Wednesday, May 6th, the teachers met again, this time at 5.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Hall of Trinity United Methodist Church. The meeting began with coffee, informing the members about the failed negotiations over the weekend, including that, according to the minutes, the board had indicated that they stood by their last proposal. Next, a motion was made to reject that proposal. Again, according to the minutes, the motion carried with only one dissenting vote. After a question and answer period, it was moved, and the minutes don't record by whom, that the KEA call a work stoppage to commence immediately. Most of what we know about this moment comes from Billy Peters, who was there recording it in her role as KEA secretary. She recorded that the motion was made and seconded, and then these three words the motion carried. Dale Lestina then outlined the, quote, "...appropriate procedure and guidelines for the work stoppage," and the members set up a schedule for picketing and other activities. The strike had begun. Sort of. Superintendent Leland and the board had developed a plan of their own, the first part of which was, in the event of a strike to reschedule Wednesday as an in-service day to buy time. Next, later that morning, Leland and administrators met and determined that they could get enough picket line crossers of various sorts to hold classes at at least the elementary grades and for the high school seniors. One group that, overwhelmingly, had not crossed picket lines were the custodians. Remember that back in April, the teachers had reached out to custodians and other school workers for solidarity. Well, as it turns out, the custodians, who were organized in School Custodians Local 2005, had been engaged in their own negotiations with the board that year and faced many of the same problems as the teachers. When the teachers struck, the overwhelming majority of custodians not only honored, but joined the picket lines, and announced that they wouldn't go back until the board reached an agreement with them, that is, the custodians. So, while the strike that May has been remembered as the Keokuk teachers' strike, it was, in reality, the Keokuk school workers' strike. By the next day, Thursday, May 7th, there was no way for the district to pretend that a strike wasn't going on.
4: The the whole community knew we were on strike. There's no doubt about that.
0: The teacher's headquarters was Trinity United Methodist, made available by the church's pastor. And we met met there and uh, essentially picked up our picket signs and
3: went out.
1: We actually were in a picket line, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when you'd go home in the evening after you'd had your turn, you kind of watched over your shoulder all the time. I feared my safety. I lived right outside of town at that time, you know, and so I had to drive down kind of a untraveled road to get to where we lived. And um, it was just a little scary. Mm-hmm. Lots, lots of sleepless nights, we would say.
0: The tensions were evident to everyone—teachers, community members, and even elementary school students.
6: I would have been just in, like, second grade.
0: That's Patty Coffey, Tom's daughter.
6: I, well, I remember that for a long time. I can remember the—we um, were out of school. You know, we lived across the street from the school. So I was walking down to a friend's house or something like that. I don't think my friends were in school either. You know, I don't know that there are a lot of kids going. I can't remember that piece. But we always knew those teachers maybe just socially. And there was that one woman who was in a wheelchair. Like, had been doing something with their car or something. I can't remember what her name was. But so she was out, they were out picketing in front of Hawthorne School. And then our principal, who was kind of this scary old woman, I can't remember her name, but just gunned through the picket line with their car. And at least from my perspective, it felt like she almost ran over that woman in the wheelchair. Like they all kind of had to scramble to get out of her her way. Um, So I remember being really scared then going back because she was our principal then. But I, that's what I remember, that kind of like that, you know, that I never really had considered that split. You always thought you went in and your school was all one thing. And that idea that the principal would be so mad at the teachers was kind of a shocking thing as a little kid.
0: On Thursday, Tom Coffey reported to the membership that the strike had indeed produced some meetings between the KEA and board representatives and that the board president had expressed some hope of a settlement by the weekend. But whether or not a board majority was forming around compromise on Thursday, events on Friday forced their hand. Okay, here we have to step back again for a moment. Recall that the board had earlier asked for an injunction to be issued by District Judge Joe Leary. Just a few months before the strike, In February 1970, the Iowa Supreme Court had held that it was illegal for workers to conduct what it called coercive picketing — specifically, picketing intended to coerce a public employer to, as the court said, bargain collectively against its better judgment. So Iowa law, or at the very least legal interpretation, was rather clear-cut when it came to the issue of the illegality of public sector strikes. But it didn't lay out any specific penalties for doing so, at least nothing beyond the penalties for defying an injunction, which, just to be clear, is a judge's command to do or not do something. On Wednesday, as per the board's request, Leary had issued a temporary injunction against the strike and had identified four KEA leaders as responsible parties, Coffey, Illatalo, Peters, and Gaylord. Once the injunction had been issued and defied, the KEA knew that it was possible, even likely, that those four leaders would be jailed, and they prepared accordingly. First, they developed a backup leadership group who would take over in the event that the first group was arrested. This second group included Miles Brewer and Lewis Walden. Next, they incorporated it into their public relations campaign. And now,
4: now you're going to see it, yowza, the derby! Back in 1969,
0: there had been a very successful, albeit very bleak, film starring Jane Fonda called They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, set in a Depression-era dance marathon. Really, more of a 1930s Hunger Games. The movie follows several desperate couples competing with each other in the hope of earning enough money to survive. Bleak as it was, the movie was very popular, and Listina picked up on it, recasting the title as... They jail teachers, don't they?
5: What I mean is, if you think about it, cattle ain't got a much worse than us.
0: The KEA had also been raising money, with the expectation of having to pay legal fees and other strike support, maybe for as long as a month. So, on Friday, when the KEA leaders appeared in court to answer why they had defied the injunction, Lestina and the KEA were prepared for what happened next Leary sentencing the four to jail. There's probably no one better to tell this part of the story than Billy Peters.
2: And this was, uh, this was when they were talking to me at the trial. Uh, I said, your honor, in my way of thinking, I am not guilty as charged, for I have committed neither a felony nor a misdemeanor, misdemeanor. I have continued to participate on my own behalf and on behalf of KEA as one of its elected officers and activities all directly related to maintaining quality education in our schools. If I am guilty of anything, I believe I am guilty of upholding the goals of my profession, which are pledged to act even in difficult times in the best interests of the students in the Kirkuk Community Public Schools. My family and I, and I must include my family, believe in this to the extent that we are willing to take the risks involved. And I am doing this ultimately for the children of Kirkuk and for no one else. The uh, sheriff who drove us from the courthouse to the jail. And to us, he said, I guess you know, or I don't know that you know, but this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, is to take you from the courthouse and put you in jail. But I said there was so much at stake that I really had no choice. Because up until that time, the board of ed- boards of education paid us whatever they wanted to pay us, and you can be sure they kept it minimal. And we thought we should have a voice in what we were paid, and that's why we struck.
0: Remarkably, the people who were perhaps most surprised by these events were also the very people who had set them in motion, Leland and the board. It seems like the board had expected the threat of the injunction to scare the teachers away from the strike. But once the strike began, they don't appear to have been prepared for Leary throwing the teachers in jail. Or what happened next? Lestina and the KEA insisting that the teachers stay in jail until an agreement was reached, as Reverend Boston later recalled.
4: I watched the superintendent as the sentence was pronounced. He was visibly shaken. The board now had martyrs to contend with. The K.E.A. now had criminals for leaders. We had a whole new ball game.
0: Next time on Speaking of Work, the strike's resolution and its complicated legacy, including what almost became the second Keokuk strike. Thanks to John Bewin and all the staff and students at Duke's Center for Documentary Studies for helping us to launch this podcast. I'd like to send in a thanks to my fellow student, Sean Gillery. Thanks to all my colleagues at the University of Iowa Labor Center for listening to early drafts of episodes. And thanks to all my ILHOP players, Chris Johnson, Joe Mason, Jeff Carice Carlson, Ting Nguyen, Eric Colbert, Don Taylor, Aaron Smith, and Kristen Noonan. And thanks to all the members of the Iowa Labor Movement and our partners for their support. Speaking of Work is a production of the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. Ilhop is a 40-year-old oral history project in collaboration between the University of Iowa Labor Center, the UI Libraries, the State Historical Society of Iowa, the Iowa Labor History Society, and the Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO. The views expressed in this podcast are of project staff, not necessarily those of Ilhop's partners and collaborators. Our theme song, Enemy, comes courtesy of Matthew Grimm. You can find his latest album, Dumpster Fire Days, at all major music retailers. You can follow him on Twitter at, at @grimreality or on his website, GrimReality.net. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Speaking of Work is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, a collection of the best shows out there by and about labor and the working class. If you like us, be sure to check out the rest of them. Thanks for listening, and please remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you find us. You can find out more about Ilhop and about our show, Speaking of Work, at its home on the web, iowalaborhistory.org.